Hey, elementary kids are dismissed and middle schoolers. Y'all can meet Kenzie in the back there. <clears throat> so today we're going to be wrapping up our series, uh, 12, 12 part series. So if you're new here, good luck. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, you got 11 messages to go back and listen to. So, um, hey, on, on December 30th, 1985, I was at a Young Life camp called Frontier Ranch in Colorado. And that evening, before God and everybody, uh, I stood up and said that I'd given my life to Jesus. And I really believed that that moment was sincere, that I really meant that um, when I said it. But um, I also believed that the proof of my sincerity would be years in the making. Only God knew what had really transpired in me that evening. And to be honest with you, a lot of my friends um, also made that commitment that night, um, but not all of our lives have looked the same since then. Um, and so over the years, as I've continued to, to read the words of Jesus, it certainly made me wonder, kind of the topic of this passage, like this, this sermon series, is what does it mean to be saved? And a few weeks ago, I mentioned this thought I had um, surrounding what people refer to as um, assurance of salvation. So this is kind of a phrase that gets tossed around in, in Christianity. And what people mean when they say that is that their, 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 their hope is that there should be some kind of security that we have if we've made this commitment to Christ that we're saved forever. And since we're saved by grace alone, then it shouldn't necessarily matter, um, you know, kind of our performance as Christians. And the problem with that line of thinking is that we first have to have an accurate definition of salvation, Okay, because if we don't, if we have an inaccurate definition, doesn't it really matter what we are sure about if it's not right to begin with. So what's the foundation in which we're building our faith and our understanding of salvation to start with? That's so important. You see, because for decades in our country, um, to say that you were saved um, primarily meant that you were acknowledging um, a list of facts about yourself and about God. Okay, primarily with yourself, you were acknowledging that you were a sinner, that there's nothing you could do in your own strength to save yourself, okay, that you were separated from God because of this sin. And then you were acknowledging some things about Jesus, primarily that, that he is the only way through which salvation comes, that we can only be saved and that relationship with God can only be reconciled, that sin can only be covered over um, by his death and resurrection, and so you would, you would think through those things. And so to be saved, people would then pray the sinner's prayer. We talked about that a long time ago. Acknowledging these truths, okay, that they believe those things. Maybe get baptized. Maybe hopefully start going to church. You probably should read your Bible. You probably should pray. And yeah, that's, that's about it. You're pretty much good from then on. And that's been the Christian culture of the West for quite some time. And if you ask somebody... Um, how do you know you're saved? Most people would answer that question, well, I prayed and gave my life to Christ, or I committed my life to Jesus, and that's the answer. Really, nothing beyond that would people really share. But as we really begin to dive into the teachings of Jesus, we've seen a much broader and deeper uh, picture of how Jesus defined his followers. And a, a much more unyielding way we must come to be a true disciple of his. 
and we've looked at some kind of shocking and alarming verses, um, like this one that Justin shared a few weeks ago in Matthew 7, 21, that says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. There's nothing about a prayer in there. There's nothing about believing a list of facts about Jesus or even going to church. Only those who do the will of the Father. So that should stir us up a little bit. That, that should make us ask the question, what is, what is Jesus getting at here? What does this really mean? So to be sure, if we've learned anything during this series, I hope we've seen that being saved <laughs> demands all of us. Okay, Christ is, is asking for a complete surrender, death to our old person, being born again into a new creation with a desire to do his will, right? We've talked about to obey his teachings means to, that, that we love him. It means that we are, are desiring to be transformed, to develop the fruits of the spirit. It means to be characterized by the things that matter most to his heart, right? We've talked about the lost, the orphaned. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the poor and the needy. And if we embrace the totality of a complete surrender to him, a complete yielding to him, and not just settling for kind of adding bits and pieces of Jesus into our life here and there on our terms, then that should set the stage for us to be a good tree that produces good fruit, okay? With the Holy Spirit in us, we're bent towards transformation. We're, we're characterized by being salt and light in this world, and we're reflections of our Savior to a lost and broken humanity. So I want to start today by going back to one of our initial conversations that we had at the very beginning of this series. We started talking in Luke, and we talked about a conversation that John the Baptist had with a, a group of, of Jews. There were some Roman soldiers mixed in there. Just masses of people were coming out to hear him preach before Jesus kind of announced his ministry. He was preparing the way, preparing people's hearts to receive what Jesus was going to say. And he was, he was calling them out. <laughs> and he was saying, guys, you guys have got some things wrong. And you need to repent. And, and the crowd acknowledged that. They said, man, yeah, we can see that we need to change. And they asked him this really important question. And this was the verse, Luke 3, 10 and 11. The crowd said, what should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. And I told you that when I shared this verse a couple months ago, that when I reread this, you know, earlier this fall, uh, it really stood out to me. Like for the first time, I was like, oh, I have never really seen that for some reason. John goes right to the issue of inequality in our world. And he says, caring for those in need is a sign of a changed and repentant heart, right? That there ought to be action backing your words, backing that sinner's prayer at, that you say at camp or at church or at the, the rally, right? There needs to be action behind that. Now, when I made a commitment to follow Jesus as a 16-year-old, there was a lot about Jesus' teaching that I had no clue about, Okay large, massive chunks uh, that I was very ignorant of. So over the years, my, my eyes and my heart have been open to the things that matter to Jesus as I've continued to, to follow him. So I just want to ask you guys real quickly, just off the top of your head, what are some things that you didn't know then <laughs> that you know now 
about being a follower of Jesus. A lot of us are young here, gave our lives to Christ when we were young. What did you not know then that you know now about what it means to be a follower of Christ? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, so just kind of understanding the, the depth of what it means to be a follower and, and like that that's a, that's a daily thing, right? A moment by moment thing. Yeah, Devin? I thought when I was first started on this with you that it would just be uh -huh. <laughs> just kind of be the round off the measures and, and say, yeah. okay. Yeah. The idea is that no, we're just a routine kind of life schedule. Yeah. That's Mm, yeah, coming to grips with the fact that we don't need to just be, you know, have a little rough edges buffed off, but we need to be broken down, completely restored from the bottom up. Okay, it was a much bigger project. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so much bigger yeah. than that. And if you actually step into that, it's like there's this thing that's coming out of you that you don't have to worry about checking the boxes and meeting. Mm. And then that's what swells your faith and you get deeper and deeper. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about for you guys, but I mean, you know, especially back in the, <laughs> in the 80s and 90s, like my salvation was pretty much about the fact that I was a sinner. I needed to be saved so I wouldn't go to hell. And that was about the totality of the gospel message that I heard. So then when you start, yeah, hearing things like I'm, my, my citizenship has changed. I'm now, I'm an alien and a stranger in this world, but I'm a citizen of the, of the kingdom of heaven and, and all the things that that comes with that, some awesome things too. But yeah, this fact that you can't live in both of those kingdoms, like you have to choose who, who your allegiance is going to be to and what that looks like to live out according to kingdom things. So yeah, thank you. That's, that's great. I'm, I know there's lots of answers that we could all put in there. Um, but when we're confronted with those new realities, those new understandings, right, we all have to make some decisions along the way to absorb those teachings, those cares and concerns into our hearts as well. You see, nobody sat me down at Young Life Camp after I gave my life to Christ and told me, hey, Bob, now you need to really, you need to start caring about the marginalized and the poor and the orphan and the widow like that, that should matter to you. And, and, and nobody taught me those things. So those were things that I learned way down the road, but I've had to incorporate into my faith in order to say that I'm following this person who had those priorities and those cares. And you see, someone whose heart hasn't been wrecked by the gospel will still primarily consider their own needs first. What do I want in life? What house, what cars, what trips? what um, friendships and relationships, what toys and gadgets. 
do I want, items of comfort, basically. <laughs> and, and their first priority will, will be to get those things for themselves or their family. And then Jesus can kind of have the leftovers, if there are any. <laughs> the leftovers of their money and their time and their affections. But that isn't the image of biblical community explained in the Gospels specifically and as it relates to the book of Acts as well. So in the book of Acts, when thousands of people were coming to Christ for the first time and the first church was kind of getting off the ground in Jerusalem, um, it was marked by many things. So I want you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, page 993. These should be fairly familiar passages to a lot of you. I'm be looking at verse 42 to start with. In Acts 2, Acts 2, this is talking about these, these followers, these new followers of Christ. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Okay, I want you to flip over to the next uh, two chapters over, Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. Acts 4, 32, it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. So some of those activities you probably could have predicted, right? Yeah, it makes sense that they would listen to the apostles' teachings and, and they would gather together to pray and have community and fellowship with one another. But man, that radical generosity catches us all off guard a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, you're reading that and you're like, holy cow. To be sure, these were unique times. So we have to understand what was going on at that moment, okay? So everybody was in town for the Passover, big Jewish holiday, okay? And so pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire, Jews were coming and descending on Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified that week. So the, the streets of Jerusalem were filled with lots of people from all over the place traveling, okay? And when they are presented with the gospel, and Peter preaches about the gospel, about the, the death and resur resurrection of Christ, and people kind of understand, like, we need to hang around a little bit longer to kind of know what it is that we're believing. <laughs> it wasn't like they could walk out of town, uh, on the way out of town, and, and go grab a Bible um, and take it back home with them to whatever town they were from. There, there were no in New Testaments, there were no writings of Jesus' teachings yet. So they had to listen and remember the stories of Christ so they could go back and begin to live like this community. So they knew they needed to stay to learn and, and to be in this. But, but practically speaking, they were running out of money. Their, their, their money was gone <laughs> for food and for housing. And so this was kind of a temporary situation. And the people of God step into this. But at the core of that generosity was a heart change. You know, Jesus had become more important to those people than their possessions. Their source of happiness was no longer in material things, but in seeing the, the needs of others provided for. 
So they recognize God's ownership over everything. And can you imagine just what a beautiful and compelling community that was to step into? That you weren't just hearing about the love and grace of Christ, right? But you were actually seeing very tangible ways that that love was being displayed to you. Hey, I don't even know you. I just met you. But what we have in common is this relationship and this belief and this fledgling religion called Christianity. And you have a need and I've got some possessions, so I'm going to go sell it so that you can eat today. I mean, that is radical heart change. We won't even do that for people that we know. <laughs> Most of us, at least. I'll say I will. Um, so care for the poor and marginalized as a teaching was ingrained in, in the, the Jews from the, from the Old Testament. I mean, all across Scripture, they were very familiar with verses and God's command to care for the poor. So I'm just going to throw some verses up here, just a few. A couple from Deuteronomy. If anyone is a poor among your fellow Israelites in any, in any one of the towns of the land of the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. That's a really interesting phrase. And he will reward them for what they have done. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. I love that. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And just like us, like they, they had this teaching that was a part of their culture, right? But, but not everybody lived it out and followed it through. And it gets put to the test when you're in situations like this where you've got this massive group of thousands of people gathered together. Um, and and it, it comes time to like the rubber meets the road. Like, are you going to obey these teachings to provide and care for people? In a passage where God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah about the kind of fasting or the kind of worship that the Lord wants, um, this is what God says. I want you to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 58. It's page 673. It's a chapter titled, True Fasting. And starting in verse 6, this is what the Lord says. It says, is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them? And not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Skip down to verse 10. And if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. So just looking at those three verses or any of those passages maybe that we just had up on the screen. If you want to leave those up there, put those back up there, people can look at it. What stands out to you from, from any of those things, any of those teachings? Yeah, Dustin. I just see the common theme that is always in these passages of your fellow Israelites, your the people that are 
that most of us don't even care for our brothers and sisters in Christ and what Christianity that we stand up for. Yeah. Yeah, in, in the Bible, there's always this kind of uh, this, uh, <clears throat> this understanding of like concentric circles going out, right? So it's like if you can't even care for your own family, you know, mom, dad, husband, wife, kids, aunts, uncles, cousins, like then how can you care for your friends or the church? And then how can you care for the world? Like it's got to start at what's closest to you, right? So if you can't care for your fellow Israelites, then how are you going to take this message out to people that are different than you, different languages, different, you know, parts of the world, all those things. Like, yeah, it has to start at the center. What else? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It says there's never a call to end poverty. It's just a step into in the midst of it, which means then there must be something for us in it as well, right? When we're obedient, we step into that. It's interesting to, to, to read the Gospels and to see what Jesus didn't do. Now, Jesus didn't end poverty. He didn't end slavery. He didn't, didn't end a lot of injustices in his world. He didn't overthrow a corrupt government. I don't know, that should make us think about what it is that he wants us to put our, our time and our effort and our heart into and what it, what it does for us in the midst of it. Because sometimes we put our hope into thinking if those things were just gone, then life would be okay. The world would be better, you know, fill in the blank. That's not the real problem. The real problem is our own heart. That's a, that's a I gave you that little side sermon for free. Okay. Anything else about any of these verses that jumps out at you? Yeah. Right. They're doing all the wrong things. They have the chance to do the right thing. It's all about right and wrong, making choices, making things better. Mm -hmm. And the Bible never says, hey, only give to the poor people that are poor because they may, because they're actually, they have some reason that they're poor. It doesn't say right. why. It's There's no qualifiers. Just, exactly. And in yeah. America, it's so easy to say, well, you put all these qualifiers in front of why I should or shouldn't become yeah. a Christian. Yeah. That's not, that's not the truth. Yeah. It says the Bible never puts like qualifiers that, you know, only give to people that are poor, that came about it by, you know, maybe they got sick and they couldn't go to work or, you know, whatever the thing might be. It's just do it. And I love the, the imagery there, the difference of the tight-fisted and the open-handed, right? Like the things that God has blessed us with, whether that be material things or our personal gifts and abilities, our children, our future desires for our life. You know, do we hold those things like this to God and say, God, they're yours. What do you want to do with them? You know, if I'm thinking about these people in Acts, you know, I've, I've got these things. I can see that some people need some food. I could probably sell something and help feed some people. What should I do? <laughs> you know, <laughs> am I coming to him like this and saying, God, it's yours. What do you want to do with it? That's hard. That's a struggle. 
It's not easy. <laughs> you guys, I don't think it's an accident that when God came in the flesh as Christ, he chose to, came to come as a poor, like insignificant man from a forgettable town named Nazareth. Right? The Bible says there was nothing about him that would draw us to him. So what that did was that it, it made it so that only true seekers, people that, that wanted Jesus for, for who he was and not what he could do for them, would, would kind of find him. Because he really had nothing earthly to offer them. Right? He, he, he's not like giving them great jobs and making all this money or, you know, new cars for anybody that signs up to be a Christian, right? Or new chariots, I guess, in that time. Like, there was, there was no deal, you know what I mean? This is what you get, you know? You had to really desire and, and, and seek him. And I say all of this, <laughs> this discussion as a precursor to the last teaching that Jesus gives before his, kind of the events of his arrest and his death unfold. In the book of Matthew, what's the last thing on his heart? So I want you to open to Matthew 25. Page 902. So it's kind of at this, the end of this series of parables that Jesus has told. A couple weeks ago, Justin talked about this, this readiness, this vigilance that Christ wants us to have, to be ready at any time, to be always following him so that we're ready at any moment. And then he goes into this story about the sheep and the goats. Most of you guys have heard it. We're just going to read a part of it. In verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you have been blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did, you see, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you have done for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And many of us have, have read this passage before. And like a lot of, of things that Jesus said, the implications of it are, are pretty alarming. Basically, Jesus is saying there's just two types of people in this world. Those who care for the needs of the poor and those who are indifferent to their plight and their circumstances. And Jesus only has room for one of those groups of people in his kingdom. Caring for the poor isn't the cause of our salvation, but it's the effect of our salvation. Okay, doing good works doesn't save us. It simply proves that the transformation that's happened in our hearts is genuine. That the fruits of the Spirit are sincere in our life. And if there's one thing that's that stuck out to me during this series, is that we simply can't be indifferent to the things that matter to the heart of God. 
We can't stay indifferent. We can't stay indifferent about our sin and our need for a Savior. We can't stay indifferent about what it costs to save us, right? We can't be indifferent about the blows that Jesus took that we should have been taking, the blood that he shed for us, the life that he gave so that we might be saved. We can't stay indifferent about his commands because to obey his commands is to love him. We can't stay indifferent about putting him first in our hearts, minds, and affections, weeding out the idols in our heart that we try to find satisfaction in that aren't him. We can't stay indifferent about lost and hurting people that he loves and gave his life for. We can't stay indifferent about the fatherless and the vulnerable. We can't stay indifferent about the needs of the poor and the hungry and the thirsty and the homeless and the abused and the sick and the refugee and the prisoner. And God spells out the consequences of like being indifferent about those things in one kind of verse that just rocks me from Proverbs 21.13. Whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. That doesn't sound like a place I want to find myself in. And I think, you know, there's sometimes I think in our faith journey where we have to really stop and think about like, is God really serious when he says these things? Like, does he mean what he says? Does he mean that one day he's going to separate people out? And it's going to be based on partly like how you cared for those in need and your heart towards them. Do we believe that? Or do we just kind of think I can continue to kind of go about doing Christianity the way I want and that somehow when, when I get there, God's going to be okay with it, my version of what he wanted us to do? Because I think I don't want to put a percentage on it. A lot of Christians live that way. Most people who would say they're saved or would call themselves Christians kind of think I'm just going to kind of do my thing. And then when I get there, ah, I think God will be pretty good with it. I'm, I'm pretty good. Not, here's his definition. How do I figure out how to line myself up with that? And take him, like, seriously that he means these things that he says. I do believe that my life was saved <laughs> on that starry night at Young Life Camp in 1985. But the proof that it was genuine, that the Holy Spirit had taken up residence in my heart, would, would be confirmed over years of slow obedience and a heart bent towards the surrender of God's lordship in my life. And as I've been confronted with new information along the way, new perspectives, new demands, I've chosen to lean into this God who I know loves me and must have something for me in these commands, right? And I've done my best to kind of adopt those concerns as my own concerns not to remain indifferent about the people and the issues that matter the most to him. And listen, <laughs> and this is important for all of us, I've needed mentors, and uh, we've talked about like a community of intimate allies around me over the years to help me see the places where I'm just blind, where I don't get it, and I don't understand what God is calling us to do. I've needed people who sometimes even just to step in and just say, hey, dude, man, you know what's right. You're just being disobedient. <laughs> you just don't want to do it because it's uncomfortable or, or it's asking too much of what you want to give. 
Because in the end, the choice is still ours to follow. No matter how much truth is presented to us, we still have to make that choice. And as a disciple of Jesus, sometimes you come across verses like 1 John 2.6, which we've talked about a lot over the years. It says this, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. That's pretty clear. I have to align my heart with God's heart towards people. And if I'm unwilling or indifferent, can I really truly say that I'm his? I don't think I can. Our hope throughout this sermon series is that we would all take a long pause and wrestle with that question. Let me say it again. I have to align my life with Jesus' heart and his actions towards people. If I'm unwilling or indifferent, then can I say that I'm truly his? If our honest answer isn't what we want it to be, then I pray that we would repent of that. We would acknowledge our sin, our indifference, our apathy. And, and in doing that, like the crowd, we would say, and God, what must I do? And I guarantee you that he's going to say something very similar to what John said. He's going to say, hey, you got some food? Go share it with somebody. You got some extra stuff? Go give it away. God's blessed you financially. Spread the wealth, you know? That we would repent, that we would give permission for Jesus to really, we would acknowledge his lordship in our life. Reorient our hearts towards his. Because how we surrender to that process of discipleship in our lives is going to have massive, massive implications for how we preach the gospel to others. What we tell them it means to be a Christian, right? And the life we call them to as followers of Christ as well. Guys, as we wrap up this sermon, here's the bottom line. I can't tell you whether you're saved or not. I don't know. Only God knows what's going on in your heart. What I can do is I can ask you some really good questions. And I can, I can point you to some indicators from Scripture that would say, hey, these, these are things that need to be present or growing in your life. That would be a sign that there's been some inward transformation in you, the sign that the Holy Spirit's in there, the sign that you're a good tree that's going to produce good, good fruit. Those things should naturally be happening as you pursue and lean into Christ. Okay? It's not about whether you prayed a prayer once or that you're here this morning or that you really, really think Jesus is cool or that you've got some amazing tattoo. Right? It's going to be about the life you're living, the heart you have. Does it look like Jesus? Does your desire to obey is your desire to get in line with him when you see that your life isn't. <laughs> to live in community, to invite people to speak into your life. All those things need to be present. I can spend some time with somebody for a while and I can know pretty well. Is this person really surrendered to Christ, man? Is their desire to please him more than anything else in their life? And I hope people would say that about you. If not, then it's time to maybe ask some good questions, invite some people into your life, and, and take stock. 
and I hope you understand what I'm trying to say with that, because we, we have to have a very, um, we have to have a biblical understanding of what salvation is in order for us to be able to share it truthfully with other people. Right? When we, when we kind of share this kind of low bar Christianity with others, we don't set them up to succeed. Jesus shared the truth with people, and a lot of times then he turned and walked away. He, he didn't, like, come back and, like, lower the bar. You know, oh, oh, no, just three easy payments in 1999. Did I say 29.99? No, I, that's too much. I get it, you know. But I'll meet you, meet you. You know, he's like, no, this is the standard. <laughs> and, and you either want that, desire it, see the fact that I gave my life for you and that I wanna, I'm here for you and want to transform you and use you, or you don't. Whew, all right. So we're going to take communion this morning as we wrap up our time together. And um, we've got the communion in, in cups and stuff on the side. The, the white lids are gluten-free um, on either side. Um, so the ushers will dismiss you to come and, and to take that in a moment. And um, I always say that when we take communion, guys, we're acknowledging a couple of things. We're acknowledging um, that, that Christ had to die and be resurrected to save us, that we believe that that's true. Um, but then we're also saying that as we come and participate in it, that we want to die. Die to ourselves. Um, have our blood poured out, our life poured out so that others might come to know him. Those are the things that we're communicating by participating in this. So make sure that that's what you want to be doing <laughs> before you come forward. If that's not where you are, that's okay. Um, just, I'm glad you're here to continue on this journey. Um, so make sure that that's what you want when you come and, and you participate in this, because that's, that's really what you're saying. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time and your word today.